For KLSU, I'm Michael Cross, and it's time for This Week in Oklahoma Politics, along with Republican political consultant Neva Hill and ACLU Oklahoma Executive Director Ryan Kiesel. The Oklahoma Health Care Authority wants to hire a Medicaid consultant to help the governor put together his health care plan. Governor Stitt has promised to release his proposal to go against the Medicaid expansion petition. Neva, shouldn't this have been done a while ago? Well, you would. Uh, timing is always a question. I mean, and we don't know what the backstory to all of this is. Obviously, the governor said for some time that he uh, is working on his own plan, that he plans on rolling it out at some point uh, in the fall was kind of the time frame. Now, uh, when, when we look at the RFP on this uh, 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 consultant, I mean, it's not, uh, I think it's November 4th is the deadline for the submission. So that would lend toward thinking that this is something that is going to go well into the first part of next year. So uh, does, the, uh, does it really have... Um, implications in terms of kind of the governor's overall plan or is it more the details of if they're talking about really a broad restructuring of health care kind of conceptually uh, at the health care authority and how those services are going to be provided in the view of the governor and perhaps the legislature then that's a much more overarching uh, um, I think uh, not only problem to to address, but what the specifics would be behind it. So it'll be it'll be fascinating to see kind of what this component of the of the consultant piece factors into the overall equation of the governor's proposal. Ryan, are you surprised by how late this is coming up? Yeah, I, I am surprised by it. you know in the, in the governor's defense, this consultant position, the RFP that they put out, is very similar to RFPs that have been put out, requests for proposals that have been put out in other states that have done Medicaid expansion, that have looked at how Medicaid is used in their states. So this position in and of itself isn't unique and I think that uh, you know if you ask the states that have used the a position like this in the past they'd probably tell you it was a worthwhile investment in uh, their planning for Medicaid in the state I, I do think that uh, the fact that we'll probably won't have somebody on board with this position I mean December at the best you know January if you're really expediting things I think that it really speaks to how long it's taken the governor to put together a Medicaid expansion uh, plan that would compete with the one that uh, um, uh, that advocates are trying to put on the ballot for 2020. There doesn't seem to be a lot of communication with the governor's office and the legislative task force that have been happening. And if they are, they're not really communicating that uh, to the world at large. So it really, I think that if, you know, for long-term planning in Medicaid, you know, this may play a role in it. But I don't think that this is a very good signal for where the governor's at if he's going to try to put forth a competing plan for the legislature to consider next Meanwhile, year. Meanwhile, lawmakers at the task force are, are looking to the governor and saying, well, okay, we're waiting for your plan. Exactly. And I think, I think Ryan is right to this, to, to this point. If, in fact, the governor waits until very late in the year, rolls out a plan that he's willing to put his political capital behind, uh, and then uh, has an expectation that the legislature uh, is uh, Republicans in the majority are going to come in and and be kind of... uh, uh, cohesively behind this uh, effort. I mean, that's a big that's a big lift for any governor. I mean, regardless of party. So, um, and the fact that they clearly are not wanting to have very broad conversations because they don't want it to leak out. Uh, they want this to be uh, not so much an element of surprise, but an element of them controlling the narrative when they get ready to uh, lay the proposal on the table. So. 
I think it's a it, it's in some measure you're talking about kind of a high risk proposition on both sides of this equation uh, with respect to Medicare Medicaid expansion because it, you have the proposal that would set it in in the Constitution. I mean, if passed by voters uh, uh, late next year, or you have a proposal that perhaps the legislature can push through. Will what what impact or implications would that have uh, both on the on the state question as well as um, uh, as well as trying to try Trying to move this along, so I, I think it. I think it's going to be fascinating to see if they really have something that they think folks can, you know, the Republicans can get solidly behind and push forward uh, to try to make this a reality. And Ryan, you've been in the legislature. You've seen big proposals like this. It doesn't take much for them to just fall apart once they actually hit the legislature. You know, I, I feel if, if the governor's office really wanted to be able to compete with the uh, Medicaid expansion proposal that is you know, likely going to be on the ballot in November of 2020 that they needed to have something this fall. Um, and, you know, we're, we're, you know, well into fall at this point. I mean, you look at the weather outside, it, it's, it, you know, the weather's <laughs> telling us that the governor's late on this because, you know, it's starting to get cold and chilly and it's hard to imagine that the governor can put together a plan now that's going to be able to compete with what uh, the, the advocates for Medicaid expansion uh, at, the, at the ballot uh, box And that being do. said, though, I mean, this could, I mean, he could, he could choose to roll this out in November or even early December. I mean, I think the, this consultant piece is kind of just a sidebar to it. I don't think I think it's necessarily that what what they really uh, the way they've approached it is saying that it's really about something to uh, uh, kind of help put the finishing touches more than put the plan together itself. Meanwhile, the supporters of Medicaid expansion are turning in signatures to the Secretary of State's office. Yes, on 802 organizers say they have blown past the needed 178,000 signatures to get a vote on the issue. Ryan, with this many signatures in less than 90 days, does this send a message to Oklahomans? Absolutely. I spoke with one of the leaders in the campaign this morning, and he told me that uh, they are going to turn in over 300,000 signatures. And so we're, we're taping this on Thursday. That, that'll be announced by the time that this airs, but over 300,000 signatures, more signatures that have ever been turned in in the history of the state of Oklahoma for any sort of a ballot initiative like this. I think that that sends a, a very strong message to lawmakers. What he told me was that the uh, the results from rural Oklahoma have been incredibly impressive. You know, normally that's not an area where you get a lot of signatures that are collected because it's just easier to collect where you've got denser populations. But rural uh, uh, participation and, and getting signatures on this was through the roof. A lot of volunteers, a huge volunteer effort um, that I think when you look at the transition from the signature collection effort to the transition to a campaign, uh, Amber England, who's r- uh, running this campaign right now, should be very happy with where she sits because she's got a ton of volunteers, a lot of ID of people that have signed these uh, ballot, uh, this initiative petition, and they're going to be able to send a message to the legislature that if you try to mess with this, you're messing with over 300,000 plus Oklahomans that have signed their name to this and said that this is what they want to vote on in you, November. You just talked about the governor. Uh, having, he could turn in uh, his own mess, his own idea come November or December, how much could this affect now that there's actually something that's going to be on the ballot. Well, I think what we have is clearly a very, uh, a very competitive, uh, 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 effort if this goes to the ballot to see whether or not it can be passed and what happens beforehand because I mean the governor's made it clear he's kind of uh, distilled it down to I mean kind of a one sentence narrative and that is that he opposes putting Obamacare in the state constitution and that's really uh, I mean that's kind of the core message that's the counter message to uh, to the efforts being uh, placed uh, by these folks that have done uh, and I agree with Ryan a yeoman's job in terms of when you can get a thousand volunteers and you can have people statewide 
worldwide, uh, mass circulating this uh, uh, the, to get the signatures, and then to do it in such a, a such a fashion that you're way beyond anything that's even required to get it on the ballot. I mean, that can't. Uh, I mean, you can't uh, uh, sneeze at that. I mean, you've got to really take. You know, you've got to step back and say these folks have made a good effort. Now they framed they framed this in in their best uh, narrative. So uh, when you get to a campaign, I mean, then it becomes the clash of how do you how do you make it for the voters when they're actually going to go to the polling booth and make it where they have to decide perhaps on a little different uh, bent than what we're seeing right now, just in terms of you know Medicaid expansion and kind of the classic uh, uh, rhetoric that we've seen to this point. So you know I think we're this is one phase. I think it moves into the next phase and it's an ongoing all the way possibly till November of next year and we'll see what ultimately happens. Right. Well, I think well, I, it's almost a certainty that this will be on the ballot. The the next phase I see the the, the I mean, there's there could be a potential challenge to signatures. You know, anybody that challenges a number of signatures like this has just got more money than they've got sense. I mean, you just you don't challenge a number like this. You know, this is very likely. You know, barring some impossibility that I just can't even imagine right now, it's going to be on the ballot in November 2020. The uh, the real fight is going to be between February and the end of May as to whether the legislature can come up and the governor's office can come up with a plan that they feel competes with this, whether that would compete with this at the ballot box or whether they would try to pass legislation that would supersede this and try to, you know, then go to the campaign trail and say, we don't need to pass this because we've already done this. That's going to be the real hard, uh, the, the real battle. And if you're part of the Medicaid expansion campaign at the initiative, uh, on the initiative side, You've got to feel really good about your odds of surviving that legislative uh, fight and moving into the to the summer and fall campaign of 2020 because you've got 300,000 signatures plus out there and you've got a thousand volunteers. You're you're ready to go. You're loaded for bear. And when and when we talk about fall 2020, we're also talking about an election year when the, many of these legislators are going to be back on the ballot themselves. So that adds another twist to uh, all of this in terms of where they position themselves on the issue back home with the uh, with the folks that they're going to be on the ballot asking to come back and depending on whether petitions might actually go out there might be more petitions that come out before before 2020 so. yeah the house speaker calls on even more oversight of state agencies representative charles mccall says lawmakers plan to attend regular meetings and executive sessions of 40 boards and commissions as well as the corporation commission election board and regions for higher education Neva, i don't think lawmakers need the speaker's permission to do this so why make the announcement well i think i think to kind of send the message and send the signal to all of these groups that we're talking about these boards and and commissions and agencies uh it, it's really a fraction of the two 200 plus that uh, the, the the governing boards uh, that they will actually be uh, taking time throughout the year on an ongoing basis to uh, uh, to really observe, try to get a better handle on. I mean, I think when you look at it uh, from the standpoint of a of a lawmaker, it does make sense. Uh, if you're on a committee or you're in a, a position of leadership, knowing uh, as as best possible what these uh, boards and commissions and agencies are involved in doing, how they function, uh, the, the people uh, the people there, I mean, makes perfect sense to me to uh, be much more engaged, not, not, to, uh, uh, not to be in a position to participate, but to observe and to make that a very important part of their own education process. Right. You know, I think that there's this sense of, and, and, and this may be uh, you know, part of the speaker's uh, uh, PR campaign here, of, of giving voters this sense that, you know, lawmakers, we're going to show up and we're going to look over the shoulders of these states agencies and you know maybe these state agencies are going to be a little uncomfortable with lawmakers being in the room uh, now that they've got a little bit more oversight 
I think that if, if that's, if that's part of the posturing here, that that's really just posturing that at the substance level, the members of the legislature that go to these meetings and the state agency, uh, employees and board members, uh, and staffers and bureaucrats that have, that run these agencies on a day-to-day basis, uh, they are, uh, going to be, everybody's going to be better off as a result of this because, you know, people are going to be talking to each other. You're going to see what's actually happening. You're going to hear what's happening in these board meetings. You're not going to hear it secondhand in the news. You're not going to hear it secondhand from one person that's got an agenda. You get to go watch it firsthand and you know whether you need the speaker's permission or not which which you don't lawmakers should be doing this anyways and but i do commend the speaker for saying that we're going i'm going to actually task certain members to start going to certain boards and commissions and and having these uh you know have, having a, uh, a better sense of how state agencies are operating or maybe not operating in oklahoma that'll be better uh for everybody well and 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 it really is an extension of the whole conversation in the last session about loft about having the uh, the watchdog budget office that would really kind of enhance transparency on the budgeting side uh, with these agencies, uh, and I think I think that I think the folks back home I think they do appreciate the fact that they think someone is it, that there is engagement on both sides so that there is more transparency, which is a word that's often overused in uh, government circles, but certainly something that I think uh, merits a lot of attention and the public is very receptive of, especially since last week since they were just offered a pay raise. Well, and I and, and which was long overdue, and you know. And, and well-deserved uh, for, for lawmakers, even the ones that I, I think do a terrible job. We need to pay, we need to pay them more. And, and frankly, which, which ones would those uh, be? Uh, <laughs> you know, we don't, we, this, this, you know, we only have 30 minutes. <laughs> uh, no, I, and I, I do think that, it, you know, transparency is the, the watchword uh, around yeah. all of this stuff. But I think a lot of it has to do with comprehension and literacy and just making sure that, it, you know, it, even even whenever before term limits, you know, and we had lawmakers that had been there for dozens of years uh, or more, you know, some of those lawmakers knew these agencies inside and out, and then some of them didn't. But now with term limits, you've got brand new folks that are just being introduced to state government. This is a really good way for them to become literate and understand what it is that they're actually governing. And the practical side is sometimes you can work out little problems yeah. much easier yeah. uh, by just having this uh, communication and this interaction on an ongoing basis rather than making everything, uh, you know, a fight or something that has to get much more extended into the whole legislative process uh, when, when we see February come around. Picking up a phone call, actually Absolutely. calling a state employee that does the job and saying, uh, what, what are you doing? How can I help you do it better? Uh, and, and can you explain this to me? That's a, that's a much better way of governing than putting out a press release and saying this person's you know, not doing their job. Because once that happens, everybody digs in. Opponents of an abortion law argue before a Supreme Court referee. A Tulsa clinic is asking justices to overturn a district judge's ruling in July, upholding the law banning dilation and evacuation abortions after 14 weeks of pregnancy. Ryan, do you think the Supreme Court will take this up? I think they'll take it up, and I think that they'll rule that the law is unconstitutional. It, it creates a burden on, on the constitutional right of women to access abortion care in the state of Oklahoma. Uh, what we're really talking about in Oklahoma are the weeks between 14 and 16 weeks and you know there are a couple of providers in the state of Oklahoma that provide that what the state is offering as alternatives to that procedure are would you know in one instance amount to experimenting on women and and really uh, you know taking away a medically viable standard of care that is you know what physicians say women deserve uh, and trying to substitute it with some sort of a legislative judgment the district court ruling that held that the that the law was constitutional is one of uh, is a huge outlier uh, you know it's the only uh, district court uh, or any court in the country uh, after hearing, I think, you know, 10 or 12 of these cases 
that Oklahoma County District Court ruling that held that it was constitutional is the only one that's held that a law like this is constitutional. Every other court that's looked at it has said that it's inconsistent with state with the United States Supreme Court precedent, and that's what the state Supreme Court is going to have to apply here is that United States Supreme Court precedent. And when they do, I think they're going to come down on the side of Oklahoma's women. Neva. Well, I think I think I think Ryan is right. I mean, the court's going to have to make a decision, but the U.S. Supreme Court has in fact said that uh, states can put some restrictions on, on abortion as long as they don't place an undue burden on a woman's on a woman uh, seeking an abortion. So I think we will. It will be fascinating to see what happens uh, when it when it gets to uh, gets to the to, to the court and this decision is made. But uh, at the at the end of the day, I think that uh, what uh, uh, Judge Strong did in, in her ruling was appropriate. And I think that uh, it will be interesting as the attorney general's office uh, argued uh, uh, on on the case and made their points. We'll just have to wait and see whether 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 we see a situation where we go down a road very different than where we've been historically in the state of Oklahoma and maybe go to where some of these other states have found themselves. And, and Judge Trong's ruling, it, it's important to point out, you know, she offered no rationale. I mean, she made a ruling, but there wasn't, there's not a written opinion. There's no written order uh, explaining the rationale behind her decision. And so, you know, the the, United, the state Supreme Court is really stuck with this order from, uh, you know, I think that uh, the, the state of Oklahoma would have a better chance of trying to prevail at the uh, state Supreme Court if the district court had given some rationale as to why they felt uh, the uh, the the law offered enough alternatives such that it didn't put an undue burden on a woman's right to access abortion care. Crime victims have a new location to learn about their rights under the new Marcy's Law. The Attorney General's office launched a page on its website. Neva, what do you think of this? Well, I think it's necessary. I mean, we have a situation where uh, in the last session, House Bill 1102 basically was was passed to update the existing state statutes so they would mirror what the uh, new constitutional uh, rights uh, are, and these take effect in November, on November 1. So uh, I think the Attorney General now is just putting some things in place to make sure that the information is out there, uh, that it is uh, readily accessible as these uh, uh, as these uh, uh, folks, uh, you know, kind of really come into um, come up to speed with what Marcy's Law has in terms of the impact for them and the information that they can now get and the and the interaction that they can have now uh, as a result of it. Right. You know, so much of when we talk about victims' rights, uh, I think it's important to, to say that when we, you know, advocates of things like Marcy's Law, they often talk about making sure that victims have equal rights to the accused, uh, or something. You know, they'll, they'll, they usually uh, forego the word accused; they'll just say the criminal. Uh, you know, so when we talk about the accused and victims, uh, victims certainly need rights, but they're very different rights than the due process rights that the accused have, and we have to make sure that whatever it is that we're doing as a state doesn't uh, give rights to victims in a way that takes away the right of the accused, not the convicted, but the accused to be able to fight their charge in, uh, with due process throughout our ju- uh, criminal justice system. And I think that, you know, s- sometimes by trying to, you know, put the accused uh, and the and victims in the same sentence, you know, it's not a matter that the, that the victims, you know, don't deserve support from the state because they certainly do. Uh, and, and frankly, I've seen many instances in which uh, victims haven't been given support from the state. And a lot of that's just because of the, the lack of uh, you know, use of, of discretion and already readily available resources on the part of uh, the state of Oklahoma that could already be doing these things without putting it in the Constitution. So you think we, gotta, we say that. And then the second thing I would say is that a lot of folks that end up in the criminal justice system that end up incarcerated are themselves victims. 
they, they have been victims of crimes themselves. And so if you look at the number of crime survivors that are incarcerated in the state of Oklahoma, perhaps if we'd done a better job for them whenever they were initially victims or survivors themselves, uh, you know, we could have helped them avoid being incarcerated uh, 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 later down the road. And, uh, well, I think, you know, your, your points, Ryan, or some of the very key points that back in 2008 in California when they passed Prop 9, which was the first uh, the first of these uh, types of Marcy's Laws, uh, there was a great deal of uh, concern and opposition. And the point was that they felt that the goal could be met without granting uh, families what would be considered kind of a new and inappropriate role in the prosecutions. So there's there there were those concerns, I think, that were, were laid out. Uh, you know, that proposition passed, and subsequently I think we've had seven or eight states, including Oklahoma, that have come along and passed similar uh, similar laws, most of them in the state constitution. I think Montana was the only place where the where the uh, Montana Supreme Court said that they had gone about it in an improper way and actually uh, 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 did not allow it to move forward and be part of the Constitution after the voters had passed it. So, you know, it will be interesting to see over time as they begin to really, uh, you know, kind of move through this process, whether some of the unintended uh, issues and and problems in just m- uh, trying to adhere to what uh, the advocates and proponents of this want to see, whether or not that can really work well and how does it have to be kind of sorted out of district attorneys and all of the other uh, parties that are involved and you know and i I normally spend a lot of time on this on the show uh, beating up on district attorneys but you know what if if the legislature really wants to help victims then make sure the DA's offices have the funding to do this. I mean, I, I, I know that if you if you talk to DA's you're offices... A lot of, you're adding a lot of work. You're, you're, they're telling... I mean, they will tell you, listen, we did not call this uh, this victim uh, because we didn't want to. It's because we just don't have time. We don't have somebody to do this. And we don't have somebody that can help plug them in with all these different services. You know, so if we really want to put some teeth to this, you got to make sure that, that state services that help victims, including DA's offices, have the money that they need to be able to, uh, to invest in those and kind of resources. And it's law enforcement and DA's law because... Law enforcement yep. are also required yep. to do this in writing. So you're adding you're adding layers uh, to the to the process in in, in both of these uh, uh, groups that that is much more daunting than I think a lot of folks just you know kind of summarily say you know just do this and they don't understand the implications budget side time wise uh, personnel and I think those things are going to have to be really kind of worked through in a very serious manner. Ryan and Eva's comments do not necessarily reflect the views of the ACLU, KOSU, its staff, or management.